episode 19 and i had to get i always wanted to get an expert on uh in terms of mental health a therapist and also he has a fantastic uh podcast halftime chat i watch it all the time on youtube i'm a big fan of his interviews he interviews some some very uh legendary guests and his uh musical knowledge is is just impeccable and so i'm glad to have him as a guest he's a uh, a music broadcaster and also a mental health therapist. Y'all give it up right now for Namdi Okoy. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Lovely intro, thanks a lot. Oh, no problem. I'm gonna get straight to it. Um, since you have like a plethora of and, and fantastic at everything, not to just, I'm not just saying that, I'm just saying because it, it's evident in your work that you, you've done your work and intentional about the things you do i usually uh for musical guests i I get into like a musical genesis and i try to go from the beginning and i'm gonna try to do the same thing with you in terms of just in your childhood growing up um what what grabs your interest most uh with, with music wow with music i am I, I'll always say that uh, outside of Michael Jackson and the impact he made, um, and, and I grew up in England uh, to Nigerian parents, and so um, outside of you know Michael Jackson and, and his global impact, I really got really tuned into music um, when Teddy Riley came on the scene, and um, hearing a lot of his stuff from Kumo D and. Um, some of the early productions he did and Heavy D and the Boys. And then when I found out that he was the same guy that was in the group guy and did Keep Sweat, then all of a sudden that became, okay, anything he does, I need to follow. And then that's when I started to learn about a producer and their sounds and following the producer and the sounds as opposed to just the artist. So that has always been sort of my genesis of of really loving music and, and especially with Teddy Riley. It, was it an era of music because I feel like uh, I'm not saying I'm some kind of I got theories or factual information on this it just feels like certain time periods of music uh, sticks with you as a child for me growing up 80s music really stuck with me certain singers solo soloists like uh, Stephanie Mills um, Lisa Morgan um, Vesta Williams Mickey Howard those voices are always think as well. Uh, all those those 80s singers, and then the, the male singers, the Glenn Jones, the James Ingrams, uh, all and, and after seven, those groups, that era kind of stuck with me the most growing up. And music I listen to now as an adult. What what era of music sticks with you the most from your childhood? Yeah, I, I, 
I, I would say it would be the late 80s. And, and you have to remember, um, so even though I was born and raised in England, um, I, when I was in some middle school to high school, my family moved to Nigeria. And so we were, you know, we're limited to what... become a hit, national hit or Tina Turner. Someone like Stephanie Mills or uh, Stacey Ladisaw um, or, or even Mickey Out, they weren't, we didn't hear their music in Nigeria. So I couldn't, so the ones that I did get in Nigeria at the time was a lot more up-tempo. So of course I mentioned um, Guy, um, a lot of the new, the new new Jack Swing was very big um, and so it was early hip hop. So that's where I started to um, really build my, my, my home, my, my um, my just love for music, um, so the, I would say, yeah, from about 86, eight, no, probably about, yeah, 86. Uh, and even those 85, 86, 87 times, we were getting people like maybe it was more, um, I would say, I don't know if you could, top 100. So you'd get a um, Boy George and Culture Club, or you get a Stevie Wonder, but more the pop version of Stevie Wonder. Kenny, uh, so we were listening to a lot of popular music as opposed to R&B because that's what was coming across and then towards the later 80s and early 90s it became more of the same New Jack swing type of um, sound that really started to cross over to us as kids. Okay, um, so do you think, you, you said it was around 86 during that time period, was it, because that's when, you know, Uptown, you know, late 80s with you know Andre Harrell with you know Heavy D uh, as you mentioned Guy I, that that whole experience uh, what was it the hip hop and R&B that mesh was that more uh, I guess that 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 style of music did that grab uh, people in the UK more during that time period or what, what was that music scene like during that time period in the UK yeah um so as I said, but as I said, by the late '80s, I was I was living in Nigeria, and so even when we listened to rap music, it was as long as we could hear the lyrics. So uh, Heavy D, you know, his it, it was more R&B, hip hop, uh, New Jack beats. So those are the types of things we'd gravitate to. So it was, I wouldn't say Public Enemy because we couldn't relate to the message. Um, so any of those types of messages that were relating to what they were going through wouldn't be as popular because we weren't related to that but something that's more um as i said if it if it is a heavy dinner voice um they were talking of you know just life and love and stuff so we could relate to to that um but as i said if if we listen to hip-hop it had to be something that we could listen to that we could hear the lyrics but um i, I would say more of the other fred jackson was was, was massive um not to not Luther as much, but someone like Fred Jackson crossed over was really globally really really popular. And um, as I mentioned, Stevie Wonder, um, and, you know, Michael Jackson's always in a different league. And, and in the eighties, also Lionel Richie probably was you know the close second to to him. But it, I, I would say that some of the real soul R and B didn't really make it across. Because I think a lot of the music that we were listening to came by the way of the UK. So, and I'm talking just when I lived in Nigeria. So that was from like the mid '80s to '92. And so most of the music we got was came to the UK to Nigeria. 
and they'll filter it out. So some of the popular music. Um, so as I mentioned, I never knew much about Stephanie Mills or Lucky Howard until I moved to the States in 92. Okay. I was just curious because it always felt like the UK in terms of soul music, they always, y'all always had an admiration for it. And y'all have a lot of the the unreleased singles of some of these artists, usually on their sophomore albums. Y'all have a lot of that unreleased material over there. So I was just always curious. Um, yeah, the UK as I said, soul connection is very deep. Yeah, and I would say that um, if we move towards the um, uh, the 90s, because in the 80s, yes, there was a lot of there was there was it, there, it was, um, there was there was a lot of support for soul music. Salomon was really massive over here. Um, Alexander O'Neill was was massive over here in the UK. So there was a there was a different type of, as I said, soul. But a lot more funk. So as I mentioned, so the reason why Alexander O'Neill was probably popular because of the music, the high energy that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were producing, similar to what he did with Janet and, and stuff. So those type of songs. So when you're thinking about the soul singers like um, Stephanie Mills and stuff, that 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 struggle to get the major airplay. And we didn't, you know, the UK is not as big as the US, so to think we don't have as many radio stations and we don't have as we didn't have as much sort of black stations and we pretty much would have a national station that played everything but it was only so much they could play so that's why as I said um, the ones that could appeal to a wider audience would get the airplay uh, and, and uh, but as I said by the 90s you know it was a complete different thing because in the 90s R&B and hip-hop was so big and we'll get different singles and different mixes and, and, and different releases um, so that changed in the 90s, but I'm talking about the late 80s, early 90s. That makes complete sense when you say it, because it's, it was a lot of funk records. It's a lot of uh, that house connection as well, that the dance uh, music, because during the early 90s, it started, I think, in a, in a mainstream way, music started. They started to incorporate more house music, driven songs, like when Queen Latifah did... Uh, uh, Come to my house, like yeah, 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 yeah. Come to my house. She did that record of Jersey, Chicago, New Jersey. I mean, uh, New Jersey, Chicago, uh, Baltimore, DC. They have that sort of house. It, it became that thing in the late '80s, early '90s, and so that that makes sense now. That UK connection. They they were into that heavy as well. And I was like, yeah. oh, because the the tempo. The tempo. Think about Salt and Pepper doing um, "Express Yourself" or um, you know, all the, because of the tempo. So you have to understand that um, we didn't have the black stations that, that you would have in a state. So um, maybe Paris stations, and, and not everyone could listen to that. So for us to to be able to get access to that, they would have to be on top of the pops, which was our sort of version of Soul Train. But that's everyone. That covers everyone. So. Um, that's why, as I said, it it wasn't until the 90s that we got more of an access to to everything. Cause we got more stations that were popping up, and R and hip hop and R and B was was so big that it was easy to access. The reason why I asked that is because um, your knowledge 
uh, just watching your 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 interviews, and I was gonna get to that uh, kind of jumping forward a little bit, but not really. But um, your knowledge of music, I was always curious what it's like. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask somebody that's across the pond, across from uh, the U.S., uh, how they experienced the music then, because when we experienced the music, it was like we had to go like, like we anticipate we may see it come on TV the promotion of the album but most of the time it was word of mouth through the music store like you had to actually go to the music store I said that in one podcast episode to somebody younger that we had to actually go in the store and purchase the music and <laughs> and you know my first purchase of music was a cassette player so it's like <laughs> the, the the vast difference of today and back then is so different so I was always curious just for somebody you know not in the united states how they experience music and what was their first and what was so you have a i'm guessing y'all 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 had a cassette tapes and y'all got was y'all experienced the same in the, in the states in terms of going to the music store and getting new music um so i i would say that um we were lucky enough to be able to get black beat and write on uh, I don't know how, but we were able to read Black Beats and Write On. So we were getting a lot of that stuff. Um, when it came to um, when it came to music, uh, accessing music, um, there was the um, there was a show called The Box, which um, which was um, it would just keep playing the music and people would phone in and request. Um, but yeah, we had the big record stores. Uh, we didn't have Tower Records, but we had um, Virgin Records. We had a number of big record stores that you'd get into. But I, th- I think album sales weren't as big as they would be in the States because of the, sort of the, the black population aren't as big. But most of the time, it would be just watching um, on the box or probably watching them on, on, on TV. Um, but as I said, it, a lot of that changed, as I said, in the 90s when we had access to the internet as well. But, um, you know, I didn't, apart from the only album I remember my family, my dad had vinyls and my dad was really into vinyls. So he had, um, whether it's Hot Chocolate, whether it's Bob Marley, um, but he had a collection, you know, it could be Fleetwood Mac, it, it could be... Uh, I'm just trying to, I'm just Boney M. So he had a, a, a massive collection of vinyls, um, which, um, the, you know, the stylistics, the dramatics, um, <laughs> um, Saturday Night Fever. So he, that was his sort of collection. Uh, but as kids, apart from the Michael the Thrill album, we didn't really buy much music. And I didn't really get into buying music as much as I, but by the late 80s, early 90s, when I got more into it, and that's when Teddy really, came on the scenes um, because somebody said he's the guy who did this that did this I started to do more research on music so I wanted to read the credits to see oh that sounds like Teddy let me see if he's part of that and, and let me see I like this song and I like it sounds like this and that's when that particular interest became uh, more of for me less than just buying the music but more so studying and, and trying to understand what a writer, what there's producer, recording in studios, just really getting that knowledge. See, you you hitting on my next question. That's what I was about to ask you next was, uh, <laughs> were you the kid that read Liner? Because that was me. 
like that was you said that with Teddy Riley. That was me with Babyface because LaFace records at the time were so hot. Like Pebbles, mm-hmm. I remember reading the liner notes for Pebbles album and seeing L.A. Reid and Babyface's name on there, and then I kept just like you said, I I kept hearing songs that sounded like it, like After Seven, and, and I would look yeah. at the credits. I'm like, oh, Babyface is on there. I think the first one was the with Daryl Simmons as well. He he produced uh, that Baby I'm for Real, and I remember looking. Looking at his name and seeing attached, and I realized that they were a part of that that yeah. uh, musical family of LA of uh, LaFace Records of creating all those hit records, and then the records going in the early '90s, and then, you know, even carrying, seeing those those liner credits, it, it helped me. And then I was I'm a musician, so I started okay. more so focusing on the musicianship, like the the bass players who the bass players were, who the guitars, like seeing uh, Lewis Johnson's name on uh, Quincy Jones produced records. When I seen his name on Off the Wall and Thriller, and then I go back, I'm like, oh, this is Johnson Brothers. And then so it just kept, you know, it was just like a, a musical dot connection of just connecting all these dots. Yeah. Musically, yeah, and, you know, and also with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, I did the same thing. You know, seeing their name on Sherelle Records and Alexander O'Neill's, it just kept. I just kept falling into this kind of tonal vision of just trying to figure out who who produced what, who wrote this, and with that, I was going to ask, um, what came? So your your music pra- music broadcaster, podcast host and mental health therapist what what was that uh journey for you as you were coming to baby what direction did you were you clear focused on what your uh what your direction was as school of what you wanted to generally yeah so um yeah i mean so i started off um so i went to co- i went to this college in the states and um, I didn't realize up to until today that I actually did attend um, a HBCU um, in Selma, Alabama, uh, Concordia College, and because uh, it was a black historic black college, and I didn't realize it was. It, I didn't realize it, it fell into the term, but um, and I and I just did a lot of sort of business classes, and then moved to um, graduated in in uh, um, a university out in Milwaukee. And so I was working more so in in sort of management, marketing, and, and, and sort of business. And if, after about ten years in the states, I relocated um, back to the UK, and still stayed in that sort of line of business until I, I got kind of bored. Um, after I started, after I got married, had kids, that you know I wanted something different, and so I retrained into therapy. So I went back to university to, to, to study counselling then then doing all these grad schools to become a, a child mental health therapist and, and, and stuff like that. So it's, as I said, it's been a sort of a journey between um, doing something that was easy to do to to really moving into a, an area where I can just listen and talk to people and help people through um, through learning how to be a therapist. So, with with that boredom, what what was the was it was uh, your musical knowledge? Were you still doing that at the time? Was that what was pulling you towards? Uh, I mean, with being bored with what you were doing, was it was it that? Was it a combination of things, or was it 
what I guess what was the journey going into music broadcasting? What was your I guess your background in that after you did all these professional titles? Yeah, so I was um, so when I, I when I was in college in Wisconsin, um, I and I started, I did it I did a triple major in marketing, and finance, and management. But at the back of my head, I wanted to be P Diddy. Puff Daddy, as he was known then, I wanted to be, <laughs> right. but I can't sing, yeah. I can't write or produce. Uh, I'm, I'm not, not the, 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 but I, but I, but I just wanted to be able to use my marketing and skills to be an executive, um, from A and R to being an executive. And I thought, I just, you know, because the more I started to study the liner notes and I started buying CDs, and I probably had, you know, I had a collection five hundred or so, but but at, at that point in time. And I just thought that, you know, it won't, you know, because that's what I used to do on a hobby. So I remember um, when I was in college, what I'll do on the weekends or during after, I'll just have any time I had a free time, I'll go down to Best Buy and I'll just start to browse all the music, all the stuff and just look at the stuff. I just, that used to be my, my, my week daily thing that was going to a record store and it was Best Buy out in Milwaukee that I'll just go through, browse just see everything and actually I got a job at Best Buy their music department and that was that was um, 96 the year that Blackstreet and, and um, New Edition came out with their albums the same day so I would just be in a record store so I could watch what it was like you know to bring in the stocks the, the amount that comes in how people listen to it I used to be able to control the music that was played in the store what goes in this place so I was just learning all of that stuff and I thought you know, I need to work in the industry. Now, unfortunately, at that time, you had to be in New York or LA, and um, and I was in the Midwest. So I, I remember, you know, the year before I graduated, writing hundreds of letters to. I used to read Billboard magazines. So I'd go into a record store, read the Billboard magazine, so I'd learn the industry. And so um, I wrote I wrote letters to every label executive. Uh, from Billboard magazine, just trying to get it with my CV, and yeah, nothing. I probably wrote, sent over 500 letters and with my CV from the, from Nashville to New York to LA. Not one, not nothing came through, and so that was I mean, so that was bitterly disappointing because I didn't know how to get in and stuff. Um, eventually, though, I left Wisconsin and moved to LA, and I was working still within the private sector and I got the opportunity to go to UCLA to do a grad, grad study in music business and the, the guy who was teaching us uh, music management uh, was Randy Jackson and this was before he joined American Idol so this was oh. like he left so I, when I finished that semester with okay. him within two months he was on American Idol but before that, he was because he was head of our um, A&R um, oh, wow. in Black for Columbia at the time, Columbia Records. Right. So he was just te them, teaching us. So we're learning publishing, learning all that stuff. And then they gave us an internship. So I got an internship at um, Edmonds Entertainment. So I was working for Tracy Edmonds and Babyface. You know, he had a studio in in the building, Edmonds Tower in in, L in in LA. And that's when I was meeting. You know, I remember meeting and uh, Amy Reed before she came out and. Um, Faith Evans and Diddy and, and um, um, just Therese and everybody because I was when you're in there 
you're seeing them and you're going to the parties and stuff. But it it just didn't work out um, because I, I think most of the industry tend to get you when you're very green. So when you're, you know, as an intern um, who's who's only worked and had a house, I couldn't afford to be an intern and I couldn't. And they don't, you know, they, it's, it takes a long time to get you from an intern into getting a salary job. And, and because I already had so many financial stuff, I just couldn't continue doing that. And so... Um, in a way that killed the dream of actually trying to become working in the industry just you know I, I was priced out I had to get the 95 and probably in LA too I had um, some good friends who were trying to get into the um, talent management stuff and they said look we had the eight of us for one job and so they can afford to pay us minimum wage so you realize that most people who got the break had to know somebody who opens the door for them and when that wasn't happening, I, I just said, let me just focus on being a continue being a fan um, from from a distance, and, um, and and that's how it was for a long time. And then actually, I would say that um, um, over the years, I kind of fell out of love with the with the industry and especially with the music because the music that was coming out, especially in the late two thousands, just seemed to be a big disconnect from what I was used to. You know. There was no consistency with love songs and groups and diversity. It became very much hip hop was dominating, and a few R&B tracks that came out all sounded and looked alike with very similar subject matters. So I just fell out of love with it. So I stopped even listening to music. I didn't re- listen to radio, so I never knew who 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 was what. And um, yeah, and, but I only got reintroduced to it during the lockdown when COVID and everyone was shut down. We had to find stuff to do, and that's when I started halftime chat and, and restarted uh, my love for music. What? Because uh, I was going to get into that your your podcast. So with that that journey, so it was uh, your connection through intern, and that's how were, were these. Uh, I guess I should get into the podcast halftime chat. When, when you started that it was just your music and just wanting to interview certain artists is that how the creation of it started your podcast no so during the lockdown so here in the UK I think in March or April it, it was like pretty much we shut that we went into how shut down really early so we couldn't go anywhere and so one of the things I recognized was that um we, we, because we couldn't go anywhere, people were going to get bored. So I thought, what, what, what could motivate? And I, you know, I'd never really know much about YouTube or anything like that. I didn't even know what the podcast was. So a friend of mine um, was trying to start up a sort of a, a, a connect group on Facebook where he, he we just try and talk about well-being and, and mental health. And so that was supposed to bring in the mental health part, and he was going to bring in the fitness and well-being. And he was posting articles and we'll all reply to him. And I said, you know what, um, I, I got back into Instagram. I hadn't been on Instagram for maybe five, four years. So I got on, I you know, just found my old password, got back onto it and started to see a lot of people doing interviews. So there was Kenny, Kenny something who's who's out of, um, who's out in Atlanta. I can't remember his name now, Kenny. Anyway, um, 
but he yeah he was he was interviewing people each night and there was different people just doing interviews on and, and i and all i did and even the verses i and i by the time i started teddy and babyface would just they missed the first one and they were about to get ready for the second one so i was like wow i didn't realize all this stuff was happening so i took my friend i said hey why don't we try and get videos and interviews which might be better for the for the stuff and he was like nah nah you know i'm, I'm just gonna focus on just posting stuff so i just said okay well let me start something so i just started by um talking to friends of mine to say how were they spending their time during lockdown um how was their journey how did they get to where they are what do they do so i started with friends around the world so whether they're in nigeria whether they're in america around the uk around europe uh, israel i was just you know people that i knew had moved around and it just so it was just the podcast was just me talking to people i knew um about their life and it, and I had no chance, no plans of doing anything like going to music, and it was just more so like while well, well, we're waiting for things to open up. And because I was on Instagram, Father MC just joined Instagram, and he had, you know, when you just open a new account, you know, before people know who it's you, you know, he probably had like 10 or 20 people who were following him. And I just said, by chance, said, hey, is it possible to do an interview with you? Because I had the platform. Uh, I would, and he says, "Yeah, sure. Let me let my manager know." So he was, you know, he was the first one to say yes, and and it, it, it I, you know, I had not prepared for anything. So I just realized when when he came on board, I said, "Okay, well, how do I do this podcast? What do I do? How do I interview him?" And I thought, "Well, I've been what I've been doing to my friends is just getting their history. Where were you born? You know, how did you, you know, how did you get to where you are? What do you do?" And just uh, talking about their life and their career. So I started to do the same thing to him. Just I didn't really know where he was born, you know, how he was as a kid and how he got signed, and focus on his journey. Uh, and that just became a model that I just continued, as opposed to focusing too much on the music. Uh, because what I noticed is that a lot of these guys always were doing interviews, talking, promoting a record, promoting an album or single, and that became what they were used to but very rarely were they interviewed about themselves they weren't doing it on censored or on song they weren't doing behind the music on them so i and i used to be my favorite show the vh1 behind the music so i just thought well let me try and do replicate that in an interview side so see the way you're approaching it uh I, I actually do it. I, I, I focus on the music, but most of the time in interviews, they'll harp on the promotional part for a little bit, like uh, what inspired the song. They'll ask very, you know, mundane music questions. And I think those interviews are boring because most of the time they just want to get to the gossip factor of the, the interview. If they have any kind of drama going on, they'll ask a little bit about the music just very typical questions of like oh yeah. you know what inspired this record just boring questions you, my approach to when i interview musical guests is usually i deep dive into it like we i'm getting into i like the origin of the childhood i want to know what was going through their head not just their inspiration with the music but how did they look at certain artists or if it's a musician, I want to know because certain things 
about musicians and singers that if you're not in the business and you wouldn't know, I asked them, okay, what key was hard for you to play in? And then when you conquered it, I asked questions like that, you know, that's, that's more deep dive into what they do musically and what that's over. Like, okay, how long did it take you to layer those vocals? Like, those are the kind of questions I like, musical questions. I, I like deep diving. So with your interview, I, I want to tie that into what is it, and you don't have to name anybody, but is there uh, interviews in particular to where when you see them, because you may have your, your notes laid out, but they may say something that may like trigger you to ask a certain question and you, when did that off the fly, you learn more than you thought you would. Would. Yeah, you know, um, so my preparation is very much um, okay, especially their musicians or singers, they have the dates in which albums release or singles, big singles. So those become my timeline. So I know that I've got a timeline from, let's say, Jodeci now. So their first album comes out uh, what 91, and then a second one comes out, you know, 93, or and then you know the the third album comes out 95. So I've got those three. That's a timeline there. Then um, they disappear and and you know they split off to you know to, to do different things. So if I'm interviewing Dalvin, it's like, okay, so I've got those timelines, so I'm, I can talk around so what was happening around the time when you recorded Diary of a Mad Band, so I want to know between there and there. But it's really, the focus is always, okay, you grew up there, um, what was, and less about the group, but more about the person. Because when you, t when a person talks about themselves, they're, they're more likely to stay engaged if it's about oh so what was it like with KC and how's your brother and, and so all of a sudden it's as if you want me to they're, they're, they're thinking oh I need you want me to give you gossip about the person and so that is how as a therapist my job is always to understand right. how to see the world through the person's eyes so I'm always wanting to find out what was it like for you when you guys blew up what was it personally I mean I've never been on stage from a thousand, hundred thousand people. So what was it like standing there watching that? And that's an experience that they don't get asked. And so it's like, wow, yeah, I didn't realize, realize that. You know, did you, you know, how was it like when you blew up and had all this money? Were friends treating you differently? Oh, well, yeah, you know, so that's more so those types of things um, as opposed to, um, you know, what was it like when Casey and Mary had their thing? Did you guys stop talking to Mary? I mean, that, that, that becomes, stuff that doesn't get you too far uh, because a lot of other artists are watching and then they make a decision if they want to come on based on what they see um, based on you know am I chasing the, the headlines um, or am I just really trying to because at the back of what I my show is a way of trying to um, bring positivity within, within the community because I know that uh, black communities are less likely to access mental health support mm -hmm because they don't think it's for them. They think they can go to church and it'll be fine. And so part of the main, the drive of the show is really to uplift the black community, to really say, even this person has sold 100 million records and they still went for therapy and they can talk about their problems. And that's always been the reasons why I do it, is to just to uplift and not to pull down. So 
so hence I don't chase the gossip and I don't look for that and even when I even if people say negative things when I'm pushing it out and promoting it those clips don't get sent out you may if you watch the entire interview you may hear all the stuff but you get the context of it as opposed to me trying to trying to get the clicks and stuff exactly um and and i think that which you do the mental health therapy with that goes hand in hand therapy and journalism it goes hand in hand if you do it right because this many a times i've interviewed a lot of celebrities most of the time if it was at a arena if we're backstage and i'm just doing an interview it, most of the time if it's uh, around people in that setting they'll you a little a bit of a it's kind of kind of crazy backstage because they got the tour manager telling them they got to go here and usually they they're at a it's not a spot date it's just a tour stop so they'll they only have like 20 minutes so you can't really get in depth but usually if it's like a one-on-one and they don't feel pressure and you like you said and you just tailor make the interview for them they'll sit and pour your heart out and it's a lot of interviews my next question was going to ask you it's a lot of interviews where I've edited out a good portion of it not because of, of their transparency it was just that their vulnerability I didn't that people were going to you know to take it a certain kind of way and it, it was mostly like I, I appreciate the vulnerability but sometimes I make the decision to edit it out and just to respect that but I respect them for being vulnerable, but I'll edit it out just for their interest. Cause I don't think other people will interpret it. Just for instance, I did an interview with an intro member, the R&B group intro, Buddy White. He was getting it. He was very passionate about their sophomore album and he was mad about it or certain particulars about it. And he went on for like a good 20 minutes about it. And I just made the decision to edit it out. Even though I knew he felt everything he said, I just made the decision to edit it out because I knew <laughs> it, it wouldn't go over well with the audience. Have you ever interviewed, did, or not even to where they were, just to where they were passionate, certain vulnerabilities they share with you. Do you choose to make the decision to leave it in or do you ever decide to edit some of it out? Um, I've only... I've only done that probably twice, and this would probably be when there was the, there were two guests who um, were worked with another um, uh, famous guest artist um, who I hadn't I hadn't had on the show, and they were too personal with their tax on the on this person, um, and I just thought that okay there is this that it's probably um it can be probably too personal of an attack and 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 i and i and and it's not that i'll egg them on but when they're just being that personal then i am very mindful to say okay there's a line to cross and if they're saying more personal details and and about money and, and stuff like that so that those have been the only times but you know i've had Gina Thompson, when she was being very open about having her album, both albums, cut short and not released, and she was in tears. 
I'm comfortable sitting with somebody do um, in, in tears and, and uh, because it shows that they care, um, and, and I'm comfortable with people saying that you know they they um, they felt mis they felt let down by by stuff and and how it made them feel talking about being suicidal thinking about ending their lives because that's what I do nine to five but it's important for the people to listen to say we all face these things and we think we're doing suffering in silence we're suffering in silence but here's some people who are world famous saying that they were struggling despite the money and the fame and it, it, it shows that it's okay to not be okay so finds help and they always talk about getting help so that's part of it so I we go through the highs we go down to the lows but it has to be a way out and I always try and get them so did you get therapy did you get help did you talk to somebody um, and and that's the biggest part of what I'd want people to look and listen and think actually you know what maybe I can I don't just need to pray about it I can get support and help you know people like Mila Williams from 702 probably one of my favorite interviews just because she was very open about her struggles when she was and music so child had their child and all the drama around the delivery and afterwards the boy being autistic and the drama which affected their marriage their their relationship and she was very open and as an open book but for her it was almost like wow i've not really shared this because no one seemed to be interested and then i have an outlet to talk and get it off chest but for others who might be experiencing similar things to be able to learn and hear and say wow she's going through that with all that fame and money and she's still struggling it means that we it's it's okay that we can go through that right going with that and that's why i love uh your podcast because it touches on that because a lot of times like I said people just look at it if it's a, a, a mainstream publication they have a job to do so most of the time their questions aren't their questions it's whoever they work for questions they want to ask because it it gets the hits the debate and so it's not even if it is theirs their agenda isn't genuine it's uh, like you said when you're talking about uh, that from Jodeci wants fishing for certain questions that will go viral type of interviews but a lot of times people don't tap into the artists they don't tap into their human side it's like they go through things too it's like their their job is to make people have that's doing the promotional they keep doing the promotional work that's still a job so when they leave there they may go to a hotel or they may fly home they still have their emotions and things their interactions with people was that actually when they trying for some constant thing they go through and people don't even care it's just give me the content give me the music go on let me buy your album. That's all I want from you. And it, that factor fan, I'm not a fan of because it's a stand culture that I don't like putting artists against each other. And, and that's sort of what happened with Versus. And it started out the intention, like when it, when it, like when you mentioned Baby Chase and Teddy, 
Yeah. That was that they had like four before they got to that. When it started to become the production and got way too competitive, that's when it started to lose its way. Because now it's not it was started out educate because a lot of people I think it was because a lot of people didn't know some of these artists had this many hits or they were behind the pen the penmanship or the production. They didn't know that. And so from that uh, revelation, oh, they got a lot of new fans, they, they got a lot no more streams, they got a lot more people buying albums, because during COVID, we didn't have nothing to do, so it was a lot of time yeah. for people digging the music, and then it just turned into, something, it turned into something else to where it got too competitive, and it gets into that stand culture of, no, this artist is better than this artist, and it's like, once you start doing that, you start focusing, so I, what, what do you think in terms of the musical landscape to where because I, I see i see it from both sides i see the young coming up because it's a lot of youtube content with young viewers young content creators that are rediscovering this music from either the 70s or 80s like it was a group of boys i forgot what their names are but they sit and listen to music for the first time and it may be the fujis it may be a guy record it may be be and they'll sit and listen to it and to me that's a genuine approach to wanting to learn about music because you're listening to it the first time and it's like oh you're gonna be blown away because they have two bridges most of the 80s and 90s records two bridges pre-choruses they don't even have pre-choruses in today's music but i love that aspect where this new generation of listeners are trying to find the music. So what is with music in terms of the young listener and the older listener? And I guess it's a two-part question. What do you think of the landscape? And what do you think of the older band that, uh, that what, what, what they should do to embrace the younger audience want to learn about music of the past? Uh, yeah. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, most of us, I mean, I, I wasn't born in the 60s and the 50s when Motown um, or Nat King Cole was singing, but I discovered it and really started to um, embrace it. A lot of classical music from Beethoven and Mozart that were done 200 years ago, um, 100 years ago, I wasn't alive when they came out. But And so that's what quality, uh, quality music transcends time. And so, you know, Sam Cooke died before I was born, but yet I, you know, I still know his voice and his music. Um, and we do that with films. And so quality will always, you know, they, it always rises to the top. And so that's, 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 that's the important part. Um, so even if you, because you, what, what the younger people are is, because they they, they're, they're fed the music that's, that's out there now, her scissor and all that stuff, the hip hop stuff, and a lot of the ones who are thinking, you know, is there more to life than just what I'm hearing? And they're the ones searching out, like I did. You know, I, I you know, it wasn't as if the, the music in the 80s wasn't great, um, but it, but as I said, I got the opportunity to learn from my parents and from others about the um, uh, 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 the other stuff, and given an opportunity to listen to, and to. to um, dissect and decide if, how they feel and how they respond to it um, because the message of today is very short-term very materialistic and very much of um, um, hit and 
miss. There isn't the um, investment in love and relationship, talking about troubles, and you almost have to have somebody who's willing to listen to something like that. In regards to music, I mean the, you know, the production of the of the 60s um, isn't as great as say the production when it got to the 90s and uh, 80s and 90s. However, there's the the, the, the power of the songs as of, of what what keeps it going. The Beatles are the biggest, and Elvis still become outside of Michael Jackson the two biggest other artists. But their music came out in the 60s. But yet, and the Beatles only came out for about four or six years or so, and yet they're still celebrated as the biggest group ever because of the quality of the music. So um, it, it doesn't change when a younger generation looks back and says, you know what, I want to look back and get stuff from the 90s and 80s because we were doing it going back to look for stuff from the 60s. Um, so that's, that's, that's to embrace. Part of what I do each day is I put a poll to celebrate old school music. And I asked people, what's, what was their favorite album from 1994? Not to say which is the best, but what was your favorite? And so, in an essence, you're looking at four albums that you, like, you had forgotten about. I said, wow, I, can't, I remember that album and all the nostalgia. And actually, by doing that, you almost want to go back and listen to, to some of the things. Because you might have forgotten. If I mentioned oh, James Ingram and... and um, and uh, Paddy Austin, oh yeah, I haven't heard that song in 30 years or 20 years. Let me go listen to it now. All of a sudden, you rediscover, you're going back to stuff that you hadn't remembered, and that's part of um, it, it's, it's all discovering it. Because I always ask my guests, "What's your favorite song?" And they tell me a song I've never heard of, and I go listen to it. It's like, oh, okay, that was good or that wasn't good. So this, it, it is the education, giving others an opportunity. Um, to listen, to discover, to embrace. Namdi Egwe, particularly to my next questions. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's <laughs> your skillful ability as a actor, but that's that was literally the question asking you uh, tying because I, I wanted I wanted an expert on it. There is something about nostalgia that just really in terms with music the music nostalgia that just encapsulates when you hear a song you get transported like you remember exactly where you were no matter what what, but you just get transported like when i hear uh intro's debut album i remember literally where i was when i first heard it You said you missed it. Yeah, yeah. As you were speaking, it started to uh, it started to chop up and uh, and the sound disappeared. You broke up a little. You bit. set up. Yeah. Oh, I was saying the the relationship with uh, nostalgia that we have with music, the music yeah. nostalgia. What is it? You think it's like a scientific thing to where when we listen to music, uh, we get transported in that way? Is it like a sign? Or yeah, because it relies on us. Of, uh, yeah, because it relies I, I just on know, uh, answer to why relationship with music and how uh, it's tied to our 
Yeah, because it relies on our, the use of our senses, our, 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 our hearing, our taste, our, um, our smell. So you could smell something and you, you it would then transport you to, um, you know, a, a time frame. Um, the same way you could see something and say, oh, I remember seeing that and, and, and also hearing with music. So if I hear Rhythm of the Night, I automatically go back to when I went into boarding school. It's the song just is very symbolic around that time, uh, or part-time lover. So certain songs that will transport me back to where I was at that time. I may not remember much about my experience in, in those situations, but the music then becomes the landmark of, uh, of taking me there. And part of going back, um, um, part of reminiscing, because when you reminisce something, in most times, when you reminisce, um, you are at a point where things are were much better than they are now, as opposed to, um, as opposed to today. So, you know, most of us, you know, from, like for myself, if I think back to when I was in college, not as much responsibility, uh, and so, yeah. So it's it just a it just a, it just transports us to a very different time. Not to say that you know the music back there was, was better than the music today or anything like that, but it can to the most times it takes us back to a happy time when we we're much younger, maybe when we had family members still around, maybe when um, we were just having fun and life was you know life in the 90s or eight late 80s was less half uh, was a little bit better than life is today. So that's part of what connects us you know we were we were used to watching a lot of um you know good black movies you know whether it's poetic justice whether it's boys in the hood whether it's love jones you know we're not getting we're not getting those type of things we had the soundtracks to those times again as well and then some of us who were in college or still in high school um you know can then start to remember how life was back then and, and connect them. So that's that's what good music does, um, connects us and brings us back to happier times. What? Because it, it's the senses too. It's like I like if I hear Al Green, I automatically start smelling like Sunday Soul Food and Bobby Womack. It's like it's like my senses is like I can like literally transport myself or. If I go to a certain neighborhood, I remember what song was certain song that I used to play all the time. If I go to a certain house, I remember. Oh, I remember this song was playing when I drove through there. Like with Karen White, Superwoman. I remember because with uh, my grandmother and my aunts, they would run a lot of errands, and so we would back then. Whatever they listened to on the radio, that's what we listened to, and I remember they were listening to 105.7 KRMB the Dallas area radio station and that they, they, all the time they were just playing Karen White Superwoman it would be in constant rotation and I remember going certain stores I go to when I go back to my hometown I remember that song being played and it just takes me back to that time it, it, yeah, but it, it but um with your expertise in 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 being a mental health therapist what is it in particular about the human condition in terms of, uh, I guess, what our, our ability to really comprehend what someone is saying, our listening skills, 
do you do you feel as though just just this is just not even a, a music related question just a just a human condition do you think most of our problems is our inability to be sympathetic towards because because I feel like I can relate to anybody whatever background they have because I always try to listen to the intention of their words and I think most of the time most of the time people just go through life and especially in the black community where we just don't tell our problems to anybody or we don't we don't have the vulnerability to tell people so we kind of carry it around but a lot of times if we just tap into if someone genuinely wants to know and care about your condition we just they'll they'll be more open to be vulnerable so i was just wanting to ask the question in terms of the human condition do you think most of our issue is that we lack the sense of uh sensitivity and just the comp- just the the ability to comprehend someone's emotions to cuz a cuz we can't most of the time our problems we don't feel comfortable sharing them because like i said the lack of vulnerability we don't trust the person we're confide, confiding with but do do you see that being an issue to with the the human condition so the difference with that would say within the black community is that um, most of the black community both within the US and around Europe or even in most parts of Africa we uh, we're generally um, a group of people who have been um, discriminated against taken advantage of and we've always had to be on the front foot so if you think about uh, so I went to college in America in the 19 um, 1992 uh, I was in Selma Alabama so if you think about the history of Selma Alabama and the march to Montgomery and all that stuff so I was and the mayor of Selma back in 65 was the mayor when I was there in 92 so you're always ready to fight you're always ready to to um to to get knocked down and get up So when you're in that mode it is not different to be able to be to have time to listen to pain because you know you don't know the next time you're going to be knocked down. So unfortunately we, we you know the the threshold for for what it's meant to health or whether it is um for dealing with issues is much higher. You have people if my parents lived in the states and they had to endure the civil rights struggle and then i come and when i'm grown up i'm telling them that oh you know and i'm feeling a little nervous or anxious they're like you have no idea what nervousness or anxious anxiety is because look what we have to do we couldn't go to school we have to get we're beaten by by the police so all of a sudden that experience reflects how they parent us and how they expect us to express our emotions and and stuff and, and compassion because they're seeing it from where they're from now each generation will have it very differently because you would assume the generation now would you know but then again you still have areas where if you were in a community where say George Floyd or any any anyone else getting beaten by the police the the way you would see the police and interpret that will still be different than somebody else that comes in that has no experience of police brutality and may not see the police in the same way so unfortunately as a community we're still 
you know, we're still having to play on the, on the offense because of the historic things that have been done, or continue to be done to us. So that's probably why it makes it harder for us as a community to be compassionate and to be open and understanding around these things. And hence, part of what I try and do is to shed a light around those challenges. You know, black artists, why is Justin Bieber able to sell his catalog for over 100 million? He's a multi-millionaire, or Katy Perry, or Adele, or all these Taylor Swift. Are they more talented than our black R&B artists and stuff? No, but they were given bad, our black artists were always given bad deals and stolen from. Well, white artists and country or pop rock were given much better deals, much better publishing, so they could make one album and become rich. And they get taken care of. So there were two. So the standards are against. I've been against us in every work of life, and so it then becomes hard to start thinking compassionately about anything other than just survival mode. You think with um, with therapy, since we're, I think a lot of the newer generation coming. Out, I think around the, the thirty plus age range. I think are starting to delve more into therapy and being more open on certain platforms about them going to therapy um do you do you think uh the, what I, I guess i should ask the bridges in the generations what, what do you think would get the is it just mostly just tapping into because i always try to look at the perspective of the generations before in terms of what they had to endure and they didn't really have the time to delve deep into their emotions because they were always in survival mode do you think the bridging of the gap the new generation of of expressing that uh, about their mental health and trying to make intentions on making it better uh do you do you think it'll be ever be a bridge in a gap in terms of where you know in, in terms of the black community they can have some kind of understanding on both sides of work it because it's always that that fine line of certain because the like people my my parents age they they were working they never took days off so saying you take mental health days sounds outrageous yeah (laughs) to my parents because you know that that's not a thing you just work yourself tirelessly but I think now they're getting to the age I think certain stories I think COVID if anything taught us that you know, corporations, they're going to keep running. And as long as people are buying in with capitalism and, you know, like Walmarts and the the McDonald's, they still made money during the pandemic. And then also with the online orders, with technology advancing, most of the jobs now are going to be online or some kind of technology based to where they're not going to need in-person contact anymore because the day to day. But I think most of those corporations realized that some people were getting tired they're get, of just getting used and, and working tireless hours for the lack of labor and pay. But do, do you see that bridge a gap with the, the, the different generations in terms of uh, their mental health? I guess I should ask that. That, that was kind of too long-winded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, mean I, I would just say that... Um... There is something to, to, to say about having the resilience that the black community has, and which is something that um, has, has kept us going through tough times. Um, I don't believe any other community, 
other than maybe the Jewish community who have had and discrimination and having to build a resilience to be able to manage. So there's something to be said about that. When the, even though the, the, the playing field has never been equal, yet we're still able to strive. So there's a balance between using that resilience, using the um, your, your spirituality and everything in your day to day to help you overcome challenges, but also knowing that when you feel vulnerable to be able to find an outlet. So there's a balance. So I wouldn't then want to say drop everything that has made you resilient um, and just embrace the mental health because, but there's a nice balance and having time to talk about the challenges and own up. I've had, when I've had issues of face situations that have really brought me down, the more I speak about it, the more it just becomes less of my issue and the shared problem, the more I can get it out of my mind and build some resilience from that so there so i know the importance of talking and sharing and you can talking to the right people what it does is that if i share a problem you i don't want you to come and give me some really bad advice um because of how you've dealt with it but sometimes you just need someone to listen and say wow how does it make you feel just really throw it back at you but giving you the space to talk it through um, as opposed to give me advice and then all of a sudden it creates another drama. So, as I said, I would just uh, summarize and that, you know, we've been blessed with a resilience that we've had to use for centuries. That shouldn't be thrown away, but we have to then embrace the ability to communicate with one another and, and say it's okay not to be okay. Uh, and then it, we can get back up again. Um, I only have two more questions for you uh, before uh, we kind of wrap it up. But the next one is, I, I'll I'll be kind of transparent and say I'm not really the best. I'm more solution based person, so it's hard for me to let people vent. Most of the time, I do let people vent, but I'm also listening. And then I, I, I'm always trying to find a solution for them because I want to help them. I want to help fix their problem. But like you said, a lot of times they just want to listen and hear. Uh, I have trouble with that. I'll be honest and say I have trouble with just the, the listening part. To those that also have trouble just listening or needing to improve that area of just being there and just just being a listening ear what what's some steps that that they could take to be a better listener in terms of someone being vulnerable i, I would say that one of the, you know there's a film called white men can jump um willie harrison and my favorite Wesley movie Snipes. yeah <laughs> and there's a scene where um um oh goodness who was the girl um uh, Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez was in bed with Willie Harrison and she said, I'm thirsty. And he went out and got water and, and he said, I didn't watch, I want you to emphasize with me. Now, but when I watched it, I didn't understand it. Now as a therapist, I'm like, okay, what she was saying is, here's my problem. And I want you to listen to me. But he went straight into the solution mode. And but so just taking a step back and, and, and letting somebody speak and says, even if you're a problem solver, you can say, oh, I'm, I'm hearing you 
what is it that you want me to be able to do? Do you want me to give you some advice? Do you want me to listen? What, what is it that you want? What would be helpful for you? Now all of a sudden you're putting it back and they can tell you. Because the art of communication, it doesn't matter where we are, color, race, gender, anything. It's one person trying to communicate, say what's going through their mind and another person trying to interpret that. And we all have very different filters because of our upbringing and everything. And so it's never going to be 100%. And so that's why if I'm sharing something, it's important to say, okay, I've received what you said. What did you want me to help you do with that? And then I can say, do you have any answers? Or I can say, no, I just need you to listen. Then you've got your confirmation as to what to do. So that's that, that would just be a nice piece of advice that I'm sure can, can, can be helpful. We're halftime chat, your podcast, like I said, phenomenal. What what do you foresee it happening in the next few years? What what is your vision for a halftime chat moving forward? Uh, you know what I start off at the beginning of the year and I have no idea who I'm gonna to talk to or, or what's gonna happen. Um you know, there, 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 there are hundreds of different people that I still would love to talk to, from New Edition, even Teddy Riley. <clears throat> um, but and also, I, I think I'm one that, that really tries not to overdo it because I know it's important. Because as I said, I only do that in the evenings, you know, uh, and sometimes on the weekends. Because I, 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 you know, I'm a really busy schedule as a therapist and as a as a, and also supervising people and I'm in grad school on a Friday doing a, a another postgraduate so a very little time and so I'm very mindful not to, to, to do too much and, and, and not to get too um, too absorbed with it ideally yes if I got um, a streaming service or network that came in and says hey can, you know um, we want to be able to do some partnership with stuff then I can leave my job and then be able to do that full time. But um, th- you know, the difference is that if, if the guests I was focused on were more youth oriented and trendy from uh, hip hop and or pop that that that, are, then you'd have all these people circling around. But uh, you know, there's no for me. There's no need to compromise what I'm doing um, just to get a bigger audience I'd rather just continue to stay in the lane that I have because if you look left and right and follow others who are maybe more successful you'd lose focus uh, as to why you started what you're doing right exactly I said that was one that was gonna be my last two but one just popped in my head I have to ask um always in the beginning when I started my brand I would when I would interview people I would ask this question and I would ask them I, I guess I a uh, preface it and ask uh, well I'll just say that to me soul music is genreless like I don't I don't tie it to any not just I know it, it, it's founded with, arm, with rhythm and blues but rhythm and blues has changed so much starting in the, 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 the 50s and the 60s because it was doo-wop and then it would transition from being groups and you got the groups, the Motown sound, you had, you know, even with Dinah Washington, you know, blues and then getting into the, the 60s and 
Aretha Franklin, it started getting coined. Rhythm and Blues started getting coined with Aretha Franklin, and then you kept progressing through the 60s and 70s. And but all together, I, I feel like soul music is genreless because I can listen to a Michael McDonald record or Kenny Loggins, and that's soul music to me. And I know people say blue eyes, blue eyes soul. I don't like those terms like neo soul because 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 uh, to me, Herbie Hancock, George Duke, uh, Cool in the Gang, that was all neo soul music so it wasn't new that i think the only reason why they called it they came up with that term because at the time when uh, d'angelo's record dropped that's when it was like oh this is what this is because maxwell you had mentioned randy jackson earlier in the interview and i was wondering if he had anything to do with that maxwell album being on the shelf for two years because columbia had shelved it because it came out it, it was they recorded it in 1994, but it got shelved. Columbia shelved it for two years. So I wonder if he had anything to do. I'm not saying he's responsible for it, but I just wonder if it if he was around during that time when that album got shelved. But when D'Angelo's, my point is, uh, when Brown Sugar dropped, that's when they were like, oh, this is Neo Soul. And th- then they could package Maxwell's album. They could make it come out because then Erica Badu dropped the album. And then, you know, you had that whole era. But I don't never define though that as because when you listen back to, like I said, Cool in the Game, Sea of Tranquility, that that whole song is a interpolation of D'Angelo's uh, Send It On is an interpolation of Cool in the Game. It's literally the same. I think the only difference during that time period was when uh, R&B and hip hop was meshing, was Uptown, Teddy Riley ushered in R&B and hip hop and, and Andre Harrell created that that whole movement, soul to soul, even with soul to soul with Karen Wheeler, I think that may be the first hip hop and R&B record. But I think because it was live instrumentation, that was the only distinction. But I'm like, that was that was kind of the start of music. So again, soul music is genreless, and and I can find soul in country music. I could find it in blues. I could find it in gospel. And so my my question is. Uh, I define, well, I'll say I define soul music in three ways. If it's the, the replay value, in terms of uh, the replay value, soul music to me is defined by the, the vocal ability, the lyric, the, lyric, the, the lyric quality, and the production, whether if it's live instrumentation or sonic production. All those three things have to align, and if it doesn't align, then it's not a good record because if one is off, then I feel like the whole record is off. But how do you define soul music? Is my question. Um, I, I would say that any type of song that is able to transcend barriers, language, culture, um, gen, uh, gen, uh, uh, generations. Okay. You know, so when when Thriller came out. That, that went global. Maybe people, maybe a third of the people who bought the album probably didn't understand English, mm-hmm. but it was something they connected. It was a, it, the language and the message that came out with it. And so, um, soul music to me has always been, I may not understand it, you know, but I but it, I, I could relate to it. I could just, I could get something from that. Um, a lot of what is out now, uh, whether it's Scissor or whether it is, um, um, they all sound as to me along. All the, I, I can't relate to it, and it's not because of generational stuff. It's just that it's, it is the, the tone, is very, the, the, the way they're singing, the auto tunes. The, it is not trying to be a trust. It's just trying to be a phase. 
and, and I mentioned that you could go back to, to Beethoven, you could go back to the Beatles, or, or you could go further back and start to remember that these songs transcend generation, culture, religion, um, and communities because there was something that just, that just sunk in that's deeper than that. So, yeah. I have this game I play with all of my guests. It's called the What's Wrong With You game. Um, yeah, it's an either or game. It's not necessarily music comparison. I just want to know who do you play more on your playlist? Uh, I make up the rules as I go. I'm just going to say that off jump. So <laughs> throughout this game, it's going to be I have different rules and regulations as it goes forward. But the first uh, two artists that I'll say is Marvin Gaye or Teddy Pendergrass. Probably Teddy Pendergrass that I'll probably have said only, yeah. Okay. Uh, next one is The Whispers of the OJs. Probably The Whispers. Okay. You know, you get bonus points. I usually don't don't care doing these part of the thing, but you get bonus because everybody usually picks the OJs, which I love them both equally, but you get bonus points for saying The Whispers. <laughs> the next one is Rick James or Prince. Uh, Rick James. Okay, okay. Those those three right there, you get you get bonus. Those are all bonuses. So either way, you would have answered. You would got it right. Okay. <laughs> in, uh, in choice. Now now this part of the game uh, is where you got to get all the all these right, or you get a what's wrong with you. I kind of put you on a roller coaster ride. Like you go up, and this is where the decline happens. So hopefully. You know, this will be easy like the first three, but this is Michael Jackson specific. Off the wall or thriller? Uh, off the wall. Okay. Okay, you're starting off right. You're talking right on that one. Okay, the next one is Miss Aretha Franklin or Miss Patti LaBelle. Um... Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would have to go with Aretha. I had a feeling the way you hesitated, I was like, oh, he's going, he's going, not be talking right, but uh, <laughs> that's all right. Okay, like I said, I'll explain the rules. It, most of it is I want to know what you play on your playlist, and so given that that's the main basis of the game, I just want to know what you play on your playlist. Since you didn't pick what I wanted you to pick, you have exactly. I make up the rules as I go. So I usually say five. You got to name me five songs in 15 seconds, but I'll be nice and give you three. You got exactly 15 seconds since you didn't pick what I picked. You got 15 seconds to name me three songs that, that's on your playlist from Aretha. Go ahead. I'm going to start the timer right now. Where's my clock at? We Go ahead. <laughs> Real respect. Time started. Woman and um, Okay, respect. Natural woman and um, um, say a little prayer. Okay, so those are those are the songs you got on your playlist. Do you got a you got an album cut on there? You got any album cuts on your playlist? No, well, it, it, when you mention between the two our artists, that you know they I mean, most of those artists, I may not have them on my playlist, but they were the ones who I okay. Have more knowledge of their songs 
Okay, that's cool. I just wanted to know what you had on your playlist. Okay, I so mean, you if don't. I had to decide. Okay. I mean, I, I actually do have uh, the only uh, out of the two artists is I've only bought a Patty album, and that was her. Is it gems? Okay, so now we get to now we get into the to the meat of it. Okay, so do you have more Patty on your playlist than Aretha? Yeah, I've, yeah. As I said, her gems album is yeah, she had the tracks with Teddy because uh, I told you Teddy was always my stuff. That's your Teddy guy. Did, so Teddy did too. He did the All This Love remake, and he had uh, This World Is Mine, and then mm-hmm. Jamie Lewis did, um, also had some tracks on it. So I bought that album. But I knew Teddy did some production on it, and I spoke to Teddy and El Jabaj about that album. So no, I haven't talked to Teddy, but I've spoken to um, Teddy's camp about the mm-hmm. album, both the engineers and co-producers, and they both talked about how, um, yeah, Paddy cooked for them and all that stuff. So, uh, but if you're telling me who who touches me more when I hear sing, it, it'd probably be Aretha, because as I mentioned about Universal Land. Um, soul being a, a, a music that can just transcend time and cultures and generations. The only qualification, Mr. Okoy, is just your playlist. And so yeah. you answer right. You didn't get what's wrong with you. You were about to get a negative 17 points, but <laughs> you turned it back around. So in essence, the rules of the game is just who do you play more in your playlist? And so what you have said is that you actually play more Miss Patti LaBelle than Aretha Franklin. And that's sort of, so you got it right. You didn't get it what's wrong with you on that. You almost did. You almost got a negative 17 points. But, you know, I was trying to be intentional about where you were going with it and you answered, you talking right now. Okay, the next one is Brian McKnight or Babyface. Oh, uh, no, I mean, the yeah, only um it'll it'll be um Brian McKnight. I I yeah I've got all his albums. Hold on. Got, okay. I've got, okay. I've got all his albums. Babyface, I've got greatest hits. Um, okay, so this is another part of the rules of the game. With with the with the rules with the playlist, the playlist can include songwriting credits as well as production credits. So uh, I mean, yeah, I'm I gonna mean, add that. Yeah, I add mean, that into your decision making. There's no how that um, that Babyface won't win when it comes to to that. If it was about albums, um, I have every Brian McKnight album, and I've only got Babyface's greatest hits. But if it's about playlists of who has the most songs with a with a production credits and stuff, it'll always be a Babyface because they 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 rule the '80s and mid '90s Babyface. So. Well. It's, it's some people that don't have any kind of baby. They said they don't listen to after, which I don't understand. They don't listen to the after seven TLC, Karen White's. You know, I asked them that and they'll still pick. It's a couple people that pick Brian McKnight. But, you know, I, that's mostly what I want to hear is is the playlist. That one, I only put them two together because I feel like in terms of their career wise, solo careers, they're multi-instrumentalists and songwriters. I feel like it was uh, better to put them against each other in terms of who plays more on their playlist because Brian McKnight, like I said, he has some classic albums. He has a lot of replay value with his hits. So uh, if we just, ba- I guess I should be fair and just say Babyface and Brian McKnight, but I'm kind of cheating and adding in catalog, <laughs> catalog with songwriting, producing because I want, I just want the Babyface win. So, but 
you answered my question. You, I know you got the the Karen Whites and the After Sevens and the, the all that Tony Braxton music on your playlist. So, Babyface won that. So you didn't get it. What's wrong with you on that? Okay, the next one is <laughs> the next one is SWV or Escape. Okay, talk. Listen, I, I get so happy. When we get to that one, because I just need everybody on one accord with just saying SWV. Just SWV. Give me the W. And you did that. Okay, the next one is Boys to Men or Jodeci. Uh, no, we have to be Jodeci. Yes, yes. See, Nandi, you, you, you own the track. You, you acing it right now. You, 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 I don't got no negative points to give you. You going, you acing it all the way. Okay. The next one is a bonus question. A bonus one: Mary J. Blige or Faith Evans? No, I mean there's, there, there's not really no one that can compete with Mary. So it's, it's good. I have yeah, there's every Mary album and stuff. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad you said that. Uh, I have to uh, always add this on to people that that listen to the catalog work. Okay, so. Mary's, I'm, I'm just gonna ask this Mary's debut album, what's the 411 or Faith Evans' debut album? Which one are you going with? Um, I would, I would, I would always go 411. It, 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 it was, uh, okay, um, okay, so my, my two parter was always I asked this when I asked that bonus question. Uh, whose is better, Mary's debut album or Faith's, or whose second, uh, whose uh, sophomore album was better, Faith's or Mary's. I think Mary's, I think uh, Faith's debut album is the best compared to Mary's. And I think uh, Mary's sophomore album is better than Faith's. Because I think, uh, my, my reasoning is, is that Mary, what's the for one? I think because it was so groundbreaking, but when you really listen to it, uh, when I watched her documentary, she didn't really care that much for the album. I mean, she released it, but from what she said, it was just more of somebody else's vision. It wasn't really her, but her true artistic vision happened on the My Life album. And so she she uh, credits that album more of her artistry and who she really is with the sophomore album than the first album. I think the first album was was very much so R&B and hip-hop. It wasn't real R&B, but I feel like the My Life album was just her real R&B because she was living it. She was breathing the R&B music, everything about it. She had a co-production on, and I think Faith's debut album was just straight gospel R&B. Like, you had Chuck Thompson, you had, you know, J-Dub, you had all these amazing musician producers that just had that ability to tap into her gospel side and she had vocal layering she had her gospel harmonies that sounded like Clark sisters and Ezekiah Walker uh, background vocals type of you know styles but that that's my thing but if you pick Mary all the way if you if you acing out with Mary you know what I'm gonna have to give you that but it was a bonus so it don't count anyway but I have determined we're at the conclusion of the what's wrong with you game and I have determined there is nothing wrong with Mr. Nandi Akoy. He won the game. There's nothing wrong with him. Uh, Constellation Prize. I don't know what the UK uh, money difference is from the US, but I'll be sure to 
sends you two dollars so you can go to the convenience store and get you whatever drink of your choice if you want i don't know if they drink malt beverages in uk but i'll be sure to send it over to you whatever that translates to in us dollars no i'm just i'm just kidding i'm just kidding but (laughs) thank you so much for coming on this podcast i wanted to, to, to just really talk to someone with the the background of not just with your you uh, being a therapist but also your just excellent uh interview skills and your podcast it has so much heart and soul to it and always reference there's certain uh singers that have this quality to them when you hear their music like the anita bakers the sade's that have so much vulnerability with the production and the songwriting it is just I call it a soul imprint. And I feel like what your interviews are, are a soul imprint because you get to the heart of the people you interview. And I just want to let you know, I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm such a fan and I'll always support that kind of content because it's needed in these music spaces because it's not enough of it. It's too much, uh, not too much shined on the artists and their, their human condition and who they are as a person in the interviews and i i greatly appreciate you doing that in the content that you're putting out and and like i said you you've made a soul imprint in these uh musical podcast spaces and just thank you i appreciate it well, i appreciate the, the compliment and it, it does help make a difference in helping me to continue because when you may feel that um yeah, it can get tiring, and and it can you can see others progressing when they are focusing on the on the slander and stuff. But just hearing this kind of feedback does help you just in keep enduring and keep struggling on. So thanks very much. Uh, nope, no problem at all. What where can the the listeners uh, uh, contact you at, or or where can they follow you on social media? Yeah, if you search halftime chat. Uh, uh, um, and any search engine, it will. It, I, it, I've probably had too many, so much content that it will be. I'll be the first person to see. So better, it's in Instagram, Facebook, but most importantly, YouTube. If you just type in halftime chats, um, you, you, it, and even um, any podcast service as well. Do you have any other projects that we should be looking out for? Yeah, I've started to do. Um, a separate R&B podcast with um, Woody Rock from who used to be in Drew Hill and, mm-hmm. and a gentleman called Sheldon Taylor who is like a music historian and what we do is we, we just have a, um, a bi-weekly podcast just going for our top 10 whether it's females, males, um, groups and, and stuff because then I have a voice as opposed to in halftime chat where I'm just a facilitator so that is something that um, to look out for um, and that will be coming out soon. Brother, you dropped some amazing gems. I can't wait to, this goes out in the atmosphere, in the digital atmosphere, so people can really take in these gems and take in all of this great information that you have given us. You're, like I said, you're fantastic and your, your knowledge of music is just impeccable and I appreciate another fellow musical uh expert or i don't want if you want the title <laughs> expert you, you seem like an expert to me so it's great to have a fellow person that's just a music lover i guess that's the word yeah, i should say a music lover that's just really uh real well informed and 
holds the the, the highest uh, appreciation for our musical royalty that deserve their flowers. And we, you get to the root of the, the real questions that need to be asked in interviews in terms of where they were when it came out, their emotions, their feelings of it. You do such a, a wonderful job with that. So thank you once again. You have tuned into the Soul Savvy's podcast. Thank you once again, Namdi. I appreciate you 100%. Uh, love to have you back on. But yeah, uh, you tuned into Soul Savvy's podcast, and we'll be back the next episode. We're out, y'all. Whether you need to be comforted, soothed, or relaxed, Soul Savvy's got you. The ultimate getaway. You are listening to the sounds of Soul Savvy's podcast where we are sure to put your mind, body, and soul at ease.